Welcome to the Armchair Trader podcast. Today we have our first interview with um, an investment trust management team on the podcast. In this case, it's Nick Purvis and Ian Lance, who are now responsible for the uh, very famous and well-established Temple Bar Investment Trust. So welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Afternoon. Hi. Uh, the Temple Bar Investment Trust is is has been going since the 1920s, I believe, and is, is obviously uh, one of the more established and more widely recognized listed investment trusts in the UK, recently returned to the ranks of the FTSE 250. But you guys are actually um, quite new to managing it uh, following your appointment to, to the mandate last year. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourselves, about uh, your your investment management firm, RWC Partners, as well? Myself and Nick have been working together for about 13 years. Um, we used to work at Schroeder's, uh, and then we moved to RWC in, in 2010. Uh, we've both been running money for about 30 years, so we've got a, a reasonable amount of experience. And, and, and we're, we're basically known for our, our value style of investing, and maybe that's something we can get into in a little bit more detail uh, later on. RWC Partners is, um, is, is maybe not a firm that a lot of people would have heard of because uh, it's not a big name in the retail markets, but nonetheless, it's uh, been quite a successful firm in recent years. Um, I, I guess you could describe it as a boutique. Really, the business model is that it attracts Investment teams from other fund managers, typically larger fund managers, possibly people who are frustrated with the constraints of working within a large asset manager. And what it does is it effectively it gives them the infrastructure uh, to invest. But 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 after that, effectively, it, it leaves them alone to just get on with what they want to do, i.e. investing. Um, and it's a business model that's worked very well. Um, and it has attracted a lot of um, quite well-known investors. Uh, we re- recently um, attracted a, a, a chap called Nick Clay, who ran the global income team at uh, Newton. He, he started last year. So it's, it, it's been quite a successful business model. Your appointment to run um, or manage Temple Bar Investment Trust, uh, this is obviously quite a big uh, big coup for you guys. From a practical perspective, when you as a new fund management team take on something new like this, What's involved? Because obviously you have the fund's actual mandate, um, which you can probably also tell us a little bit about. But you obviously have your own your own style as managers as well. And that's part of the reason why you've been selected to do this. How quickly is it possible for you to actually have an impact on the performance of a fund like this? Quite quickly, hopefully. And the, the, the reason that I laugh is because the... Uh... The trust is actually out 65 cents since we took it over. And obviously, we'd like to think that uh, we, we had uh, a, a part to play in that impact. In the case of Temple Bar, the boards actually made the decision that they wanted to stick with the value staff. They, want, they, they decided they wanted to change the manager, but they decided they wanted to stick with an investment staff. And therefore, when they came to decide a new manager, that, that actually put us in a reasonably good position because... Um, Value investing has been a tough place to be for the last few years. There aren't that many value investors uh, left around. And, and, and Nick and I are part of a very small club of uh, value investors who have actually managed to keep their jobs in the last few years. Um, and so it, it actually did make it relatively straightforward because what it meant is that we weren't changing the style of the trust. So basically, we took the trust on and it was actually it was actually rebalanced by a third party company. Um, but they rebalanced it to a model that we wanted them to rebalance it to that, that, that effectively reflects the value bias that we've got in, in our other funds. Um, and that, that took place over the course of probably about a month. But it meant that from about November, the, the trust was effectively as we wanted it to look 
Um, and as I say, so, you know, so far, so good. It had dropped out of the FTSE 250, but now back into it again and uh, re-establishing its credentials. Can you tell us a little bit more about sort of your value approach to investing, what, what you would consider to be the sorts of things you're looking for from, from a company you'd want to invest in? We believe and, and have always believed, and, and, and last year was we felt a great example of this. We, we, we believe that in, investors as a group overreact to short-term changes in news flow. And obviously, we go back, you know, to go back to last March, a year ago, you know, the market was understandably extremely concerned about the likely impact that coronavirus uh, would have on on corporate profitability, and and it was questioning a lot of cases whether companies would have to raise fresh equity, and and many companies saw their share prices, you know, more than half in in the in the early stages of, of last year. The point that we would make is is that investors must remember when you buy a share in a company, you're basically buying a, a claim on a very long term stream of cash flow, so you know twenty thirty years out, and so if you get um, a recession caused by coronavirus, and of course we are effectively in recession now, and that has a perhaps a very damaging effect on years one and two of a company's profitability. Actually, provided you believe that the company's profitability can return to some sort of normality relatively quickly, that in itself doesn't significantly impact the value of the company to its shareholders, and so. What that means, of course, is that episodes like the one we saw last year, what it tends to mean is that people overreact um, because obviously obviously they're fearful. And that often provides, and we actually you know, feel that it did provide opportunities for, for value investors such as ourselves who have a long who have a longer term time frame to come in and buy into companies whose long-run earnings potential is being significantly underestimated by the market. Interesting to hear you say that, because one of the observations we've had with, with the pandemic is obviously there was a huge sell-off. Pretty much everything got sold off. Then then the market seems to have broken up into three different sort of streams in terms of the returns you could expect. One being guys like Netflix, many of the tech stocks, um, but certainly uh, stocks that would benefit from the presence of the pandemic have come roaring back really, really quickly and achieved some amazing uh, valuations. Then you've got the middle rankers, which are the stocks that are going to um, get back to where they are gradually because the market can now see there is a there is some kind of a recovery. There is now um, you know vaccinations going on, vaccine rollouts. So those those are the companies that have sort of benefited in the medium term. And then there are those stocks that are still struggling because investors while they might see the light at the end of the tunnel um they're just not convinced how close that light is is really going to be and, and i know you you guys have picked up on some of those stories one being um the airlines and the other one being the oil industry which, which had an appalling year last year but where i think you you believe there's actually um quite some significant upside now of course you're right and and, and it of course, coronavirus has affected and will affect all sorts of different companies in all sorts of different ways. And of course, we have to try. You're, you're absolutely right that some industries have not been impacted at all and um, other other companies being you know, really quite temporarily affected and other companies where the scars are going to take a, take a lot longer to heal. You mentioned the airlines are probably a good example of actually where 
the scars will take some time to heal. I mean, I think people obviously it's very, very difficult to estimate how the airline industry might recover, but the airlines themselves seem to think that they'll return to sort of 2019 levels of profitability sometime in 2024. And of course we have to make, when we're evaluating companies and trying to work out whether the very significant share price declines that we did see last year were an overreaction, we're having to obviously form a view as to how quickly profitability can be expected to recover, if it, if it recovers at all. Um, and of course, you know, when you're making assumptions like that, those assumptions are subject to error. And of course, we will make mistakes. But I suppose one, one shouldn't forget, you know, that the scale of the sell-off that we saw this time last year, the level of assumption that the stock market was making about these companies and their ability to return to some sort of normality, you know, we think left plenty of scope for positive surprise further down the line. And, and, and so far, that seems to be coming to fruit. I guess the only, the only thing that I'd add is that if you go back to actually before the pandemic, we'd, we'd reached a set of circumstances which were not dissimilar to those that we saw in 2000. In other words, there was one group of um, stocks, you know, grey stocks, so in this case, mainly technology companies, that, that the market just loved. And people had just decided that these were the future um, and, and that basically you could just pay any valuation for them and it just didn't really matter. And then there was another subset of stocks, you could call them sort of old economy stocks or, or you know, whatever, um, that the market just decided they, they were going to be the disruptive companies. You basically didn't want to own them no matter how low you valued they were. And as I said, that was very similar to the circumstances in 2000. And of course, you know, what happened in a few years following that will be uh, the, the, the great set of companies, the technology companies lost 75% of their value in the following two years. And the, the boring old economy stocks like tobacco stocks and uh, utility stocks went on to compound at between 15 and 20 percent per annum for about the next decade. And so we'd already reached that sort of situation. And I think the pandemic just just basically exacerbated that because the, you, you're right. The, I think the market took the view that the, the beneficiaries of, of the pandemic and lockdown were, were, again, the tech companies. And so they have one final leg up to you know, even more sort of stratospheric valuations. And the opposite happened with the old economy stocks, the cyclical stocks, and so on and so forth. So, to, you know, to give you an example, NatWest Group, which uh, used to be known as Royal Bank of Scotland, that, that, that fell to the same share price last year as it was on the day that the UK government had to step in and bail it out in 2009, despite the fact that it was holding three times the amount of capital that it was back then. You know, the, uh, the oil companies in October ended up on... 9 to 10% dividend yields on their cut dividends. So, you know, these these were these were truly amazing valuations that uh, that the markets threw up last last year. Temple Bar Investment Trust it's it's striking when we look at when we we analyze uh, a lot of the investment trusts including a lot of the top performers from last year. They are all um in the same small number of about half a dozen big tech stocks. So it's quite refreshing to see see an investment trust that is not owning exactly the same tech stocks as a lot of the other guys on the street. Um, and, and you, as you, as you say, you, your, your top 10 portfolio holdings are definitely what I would call traditional old economy stocks. Um, and it sounds like you're, that's what you're backing is that gradual recovery of, of the old economy stocks that have been just far too heavily sold for what it is they're actually doing. The, the, the problem with what we do is that, uh, in the long term, it's a good it's a good uh, investing strategy. But in the short term, it's a lousy marketing strategy because 
when people look at our um, our list of top 10 holdings, most of the names fit, make them feel slightly nauseous. Um, so, if, if I, you know, if I said, if I, if I read out names like Royal Mail, which is our biggest holding, or Marks and Spencers, you know, most people's instinctive reaction is, oh, my God, what lousy businesses they are. There are two things that that sort of reaction tends to miss out. The, the, the first one is you just got to remind yourself that if you think that, probably a lot of other people do, and therefore possibly that that is already in the price. The second thing is you've got to actually look at where the business is going, not where it's been. So you have to think about actually is this a business which has you know recovery potential for whatever reason? Might be the economic cycle, might be a, a new management strategy, and and with a lot of our companies, although you might look look at them and think that they are not, you know, they don't have the same glorious business model as a Google or a Facebook or whatever. Actually, they are they are companies that have got quite a lot of um, business momentum at the moment and are starting from pretty low valuations. One of the areas we've done a, quite a bit of work on on the armchair trader um, over the last few months has been the airline sector. And, um, you know, I live on the on the Gatwick flight path and have historically been used to looking up in the blue sky and seeing tons of vapor trails. Um, these days when it's a nice day, you're lucky to see one right now. Uh, we hear a lot of stories of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pilots who are still kicking their heels on furlough. But we had a call this morning where um, a wealth manager was questioning, will there be a return of the old, to the old days of uh, business travel? What's your What's your take on the airline sector? Because that's something that a lot of investors, we can see the data, there's a lot of investors who are really interested in in airline stocks, and they really see this as a big recovery story. But at the same time, we're not really seeing yet a return to that to the travel. It looks like the, the pandemic is very much in control. And even when that stops, the question is, will we see, you know, guys like you know, Ryanair, EasyJet, IAG will it will it really get back to to where they used to be we actually that's your point at the beginning which is that the fact that of the coronavirus victims if that's the way you want to describe them the market seems to be taking quite a different view with regard to different companies being more generous in some sectors than perhaps it is in other sectors we, we actually think that in the in the airline sector the market's been relatively generous we would say to the extent that we think it's pricing in a relatively speedy and full recovery back to the kind of levels of profitability that we were seeing in 2019. One thing you have to be aware of and, and which perhaps is not obvious without a closer examination is is the fact that of course Airlines typically, typically various from airline to airline, but typically they, they don't normally run with much in the way of debt um, because it's a very cyclical industry, as you know, and therefore it's important that these companies maintain strong finances so that they can obviously you know, withstand a, a downturn of the, type, of the type that we've seen. But what's happened, of course, in the last 12 months is that they've burnt significant amounts of cash because obviously... Uh, they've got effectively very little in the way of revenues coming in, but obviously they've got these large fixed cost bases. And so they do burn cash at quite a rate, obviously, when the planes aren't flying. And so, you know, a, a lot of the air, and some, and some of them, as you know, have had to raise fresh equity. In fact, most of them have actually raised fresh equity of one, one type and another. But nevertheless, the, the amount of debt they've got on the balance sheet has gone up very significantly. And you need to, you must incorporate that into your valuation. So you can't expect, even if conditions in the airline industry go back to where they were quite quickly, you can't, you shouldn't expect the share prices 
to regain all of the lost ground because quite a significant portion of your enterprise value now is actually made up of, of debt and you need to basically factor that factor that in, into into your valuation. As I said at the beginning, we, we think that when you look at not actually just the airlines, but other parts of the travel industry as well, we do think the market's possibly being quite generous in the way that it's assuming that, that, that profitability returns in, in quite short order. And the, the other th- the other big theme we're seeing, obviously, is uh, a lot of people, a lot of investors, actually, I have to say, are really interested in uh, the whole clean energy, clean tech, environmentally sound investment story. Um, now, there are investors who are still interested in, in, in the small cap energy sector. You, interestingly, have um, some fairly big names in oil. Um, you've, you've said that you think oil companies were oversold, and, and we have certainly seen the oil price gradually coming back over the course of 2020. How do you see oil companies fitting into all this now? Because uh, it's really trendy to be looking at um, alternative sources of energy. At the same time, you know those those alternative sources of energy. A lot of it hasn't come online yet. Um, it hasn't lived up to its full potential yet. And there's a lot of demand for uh, oil and petroleum products um, in the economy. And 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 those products are going to have to be consumed at least for a few more years. Um, at the same time, we see oil companies like BP coming out and, and telling investors about their their new strategy and how how they're starting to invest money in in green energy technology and, and trying to change from being those traditional fossil fuel companies. What's your take on the oil sector now? Is that is that something you're you're still a, a fan of? And and if you are a fan of it, is that a short term play or do you see it having more sort of medium to long-term characteristics. Just be aware that uh, trendy in the stock market is a dangerous word because <laughs> trendy means often means overvalued. You know, I'm afraid we think that there is significant overvaluation in some of these new energy companies. Returning to the sort of traditional energy companies, I think a very important point to make to start off with is that we all recognise the climate emergency. We all recognise that Greenhouse gas emissions have to come down very significantly in reasonably short order if uh, we're going to have any chance of meeting the stipulations of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, which is obviously to limit uh, temperature increases to one and a half to two degrees above where they were in pre, pre-industrial times. Very important to make the point that, the, that you know, possibly after a slow start, the, the energy companies themselves really get this now. And you're probably aware that many governments, aren't they, are putting out targets for, for when they want, when they as an, as an economy want to get to net zero, I believe in the UK, I think the target is for 2050. And likewise, the companies themselves, so all of the, well, certainly all of the European integrated energy companies have now put out targets to get to uh, net zero carbon emissions by, by 2050, which, which, as I say, is in line with where we need to be to limit global warming to an acceptable level. They set out their roadmap. They've not only put out their targets, but said how they're going to get there and, and what that is going to look like in economic terms, how are the profits of the business likely to evolve in the meantime, dependent, of course, on the oil price. I suppose the, the point we're really trying to make is that you, you, know, you can invest in these companies with a clear conscience. 
it's not a case of you, you have to be invested in new energy companies uh, and, and that there, there is no other way. You, you can invest in energy companies, integrated energy companies today with a clear conscience and actually we think with the prospect of much more attractive uh, financial returns. L let me take, I mean, it's just probably easy to just pick an example. You just pick an example in BP, for example. BP have, have laid out their roadmap. Again, as I say, and again, have certainly said that they intend to get to net zero by, by 2050. And that will, they'll achieve that by changing their energy mix, uh, i.e. they will be able to move from oil to gas. And a lot of that gas will be abated gas. So that will be with the, with the carbon removed. Uh, it will be with a greater focus, obviously, on re renewables. It will be with uh, using carbon uh, capture and, and storage uh, technologies. But even within that, they think that they can you know, generate over the, over the next few years very attractive levels of, of cash flows. And, and, they, and they give you some pretty helpful sensitivities. So they, they say that if you believe in a world of $40 oil, and, and bear in mind we're at $70 today, if you believe in a world of $40 oil, then the, the, the company uh, is cash flow neutral at that stage and can pay a, a around a 5% dividend yield. Now, you won't, you won't get much else at $40 oil. But if the oil price is higher than that, 50, 60, 70, which is where we are today, then obviously the company has become you know, very, very uh, free cash flow generative. We think that at today's oil price, and we don't know, of course, whether today's oil price is sustainable, the company sits on a free cash flow yield well into the double digits, around, I can't remember the exact number, around 15%, that, that's, that, sort, that sort of order. You can compare that to the, the cash flow yields that you are being offered on some of these new energy companies. We think they look very, very attractive. And I suppose the final point to make here is that is to, to make the observation is, is that you know, these are capital intensive industries and the oil price is very, very sensitive to small changes in the supply demand dynamic. And if these companies underinvest for a period of time, then that is likely to result in reduced supply. And that is likely over time to result in a higher oil price. And we think that is exactly what we're seeing today. So the, the, the oil companies as a group are investing 60% less today in CapEx than they were in 2014, which is when the oil price originally peaked. So there's been massive cut in investment. And we think that that is perhaps setting up the world for a, uh, a period perhaps of pretty tight oil supplies and actually potentially higher oil prices. And so far that is coming through. Uh, as, as we've already said, the valuations of these companies really, really stack up very attractively at the oil prices we're seeing at the current time. You said before, as as value investors, that you're often confronted with the value trap problem, a value trap being companies or sectors which are in structural decline, where people who describe themselves as value investors might buy a company thinking, wow, this is cheap but not really fully appreciating the fact that, that that's just going to keep getting cheaper. Um, and there have been many, many um, good examples of that over the years. Um, you obviously don't feel that the, the energy industry represents that. Are you able to say if there are particular sectors that might be creating those sorts of circumstances where they are becoming a, a value trap and that value-based investors need to be careful? I think yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe give you a, 
a few examples. So some of them, I think, are, are are relatively obvious. So, for you know, department stores is a is a really good example, isn't it? We, the, the the department stores were were, were struggling pre coronavirus, and I think uh, I think lockdown has basically put the nail in the coffin for you know a lot of department stores. And you know that, that that's just an industry that it, it it doesn't look like it's going to be reverted. It's it's, it's almost certainly um, going well, going to be significantly smaller. There, there are other industries where that could be the case and it's it's hard to know for sure at the moment so to give an example if you are a uh, if you're a property company and you own lots of um uh, properties in in uh, on on retail parts for instance you know there's a, there's a good chance that a, a lot of that demand for that property is, is not coming back but but time will tell uh if you're a property company and you own lots of um, city center properties as well you know it, i think there's a reasonable chance that we are not, as a society, going back to working in offices in city centres five days a week, and therefore there'll be significantly less demand for, for property in the future. Um, we spoke earlier on about airlines, and airlines is another one. It's, it's difficult to know, isn't it? Do, do we ever get back to the sorts of levels of um, flying uh, that we that, that we used to see? So I, th- I think those are those are some areas that we are you know, that we're slightly wary on. The, the, the other thing that I'll say, though, is that we are also finding opportunities in areas where the investors quite quick to write them off. Energy is a good example that we've already spoken about. But, um, for instance, we have a holding in, in Dixon's Carphone. And that's a, you know, that's a company that I think a lot of people might have thought would really struggle to compete with someone like Amazon. And yet the reality is that actually it's it, it's done very, very well. It, you know, it, it has 25% market share in electrical retailing. And that's gone up every year for seven years. They actually have a price match promise that they, they won't be undercut by Amazon. So actually, you, you know, you can be sure that you're buying goods cheaper from them than, than you are from Amazon. And, and yet I think investors probably felt that, that it would be a type of structural decline, a value trap, call it what you want. And therefore, the shares at one stage were very, very lowly priced. You're you're looking at your overall allocation from a geographical perspective. It's um, quite strongly weighted towards the UK. I'm guessing that that that's a deliberate weighting, but also force of circumstance as well. It also seems to us from where we're sitting now that actually amongst the developed world, the UK is actually seems to be in in a further along the recovery route than than many other competing economies of of similar size and level of development does that is that something you share are you seeing are you being generally more positive on on companies that are uh, more exposed to the uk than those that are more uh, globally uh, diverse but therefore also potentially i'm um, still going to see some downside in their in their deme- in other domestic markets the the, the mandate of, of temple bar says that we have to we have to have 70 percent of the fund invested in in uk companies so i guess that's the the first thing to say um, I would agree with your point that I think because the vaccine program has gone well, the UK probably is further along the uh, the, the recovery curve than a lot of other countries. But I'll, but I'll add to that two other points. The first one is is just valuation. So we have data which shows that the UK market's valuation relative to the rest of the world stock markets, if you want to think of it that way, is at the widest discount that it's been for for 50 years. You literally have to go back to the 1970s to get the UK market this cheap relative to MSCI world. And of course, that 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 is partly because 
the, the US stock market is is so expensive at the moment. But 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 we think the UK is a, is, is a cheap market. And then the final thing is. For the last few years, the the constituents of the UK market have been areas that you probably didn't want to be exposed to. So the big components of the UK market are things like energy, materials, financials. Going forward for the next few years, actually, they might, those might be exactly the sorts of sectors that you do want to be exposed to, because probably the you know the outlook for the next couple of years is one of economic recovery, with the possibility that we might see inflation start to increase. And if that is the case, then those are, those are exactly the sectors that you want to be exposed to. So so actually, I think that you know the UK market's got quite a lot going for it at the moment. I see you've also got quite a bit of Royal Mail in the fund. Uh, we are we know our readers are big fans of Royal Mail. A lot of them have Royal Mail shares. Um, we've looked at it in the past, um, and we've we've wondered a bit about competition for Royal Mail, particularly since the lockdown started twelve months ago. Um, you've seen a lot of other companies. Uh, working very hard, driving their vans around city streets. How do you feel Royal Mail has held up? Because I mean, the other side of the argument is that this is this actually has been a great opportunity for Royal Mail, and that shift to online shopping, which we've been seeing, that's the trend that's just that's going to continue. And Royal Mail presumably is going to be a major beneficiary of that. Royal Mail, has, we think to a certain extent, has had a per- perception problem. I think what your listeners might not be aware of obviously when we, when we think of Royal Mail we tend to think of the letters business which of course we all know and we all know that that letters is, is essentially in decline and that decline has only been accelerated by coronavirus and I think that, that that's ultimately is is what led the market really in the spring of last year to sell the shares down very aggressively. What many investors perhaps don't realise is that actually Royal Mail has a 50% market share in, in UK parcels, which is an incredibly strong market position. And, and, as, you're, and as you rightly say, um, parcel volumes have gone up very significantly the last 12 months. They, I mean, they, the numbers fluctuate, but they're, but they're running between plus, plus 20% and, and, and plus, uh, plus 30%. And Royal Mail sales have obviously been putting price increases through as well. The company is, has, has, there's been no doubt about it, has benefited very significantly from coronavirus. It's actually, it actually just last week put out a, it had a, a, a trading update in which it said that for this year, it's got a March year end, by the way. So for the year, for the year to end uh, of March of this year, it thinks it's going to deliver 700 million of operating profit. And that's on a company with a market capitalization. Even today and even post the reasonably strong share price rise that we've seen from a very low base, the market capitalization today is around is around 5 billion. Is, is there an unsustainable element to the level of increase in parcel volumes that we've seen during lockdown? Probably, you know, as and when lockdown comes to an end, will we expect to see some sort of resetting of parcel volumes downwards to a more normal level? Maybe yes. But I think we agree with you. I mean, do, having, having said that, you know, the, the move to online and therefore uh, the uptick in parcel volumes, it has, has been likely to have been permanently accelerated. And, and we, we see that the vast majority of the increase in volumes is, is likely to be here to stay. As value investors, and, and obviously with your strong UK focus, last year, I know you you weren't managing the investment trust throughout last year. Um, you've only taken it over more recently. But this this environment, um, from a value investment perspective, this must be like a once in a generation or potentially even a once in a career event for you guys. And it's something that, um, you know, you'll be 
uh, telling your grandchildren about one day, oh, yes, you remember the great you know, value opportunity market of 2020, um, I, I guess the way that Nick and I have been describing this is that we've, we've been doing this for about 30 years. We think that we've seen two other situations similar to this. So what one was uh, 2000 post the TMT bubble. Uh, the other one was sort of post the financial crisis. And this is the third one. So that, you know, they certainly don't come around very often, uh, you know, maybe once in 10 years or so. And and they're basically brought about by, by a, a sort of just a massive um, dislocation within markets that actually leads people to to, to almost panic, actually, and to, and to sort of sell shares at almost irrational prices. If you can uh, remain calm during those periods and actually exploit them rather than get panicked by them, you can actually, you know, put yourself together a portfolio, which which actually you could then just sit and leave for, for a number of years. And effectively, you just harness those gains. That was certainly the case post 2000. It, it was it was again the case post financial crisis. And, and it sort of feels like it's going to be the case again today. Nick, I don't know if you want to uh, add anything to that. Nope. <laughs> no, <it's fine>. <laughs> <laughs> very, very wise words indeed. Yeah, no, I would probably agree with you having having. Um you know, worked as a journalist through both those previous crises and uh, particularly the 2008 financial crisis when it seemed like the whole financial system was about to melt down and, and um, people were just dumping stocks like it was going out of fashion. I think that there's an expression, isn't there, that you, you, you make most of your money in bear markets, you just don't realise it at the time. <laughs> yes. And I, th- I think that's probably that's probably a fair comment, actually, because it's it's only those sort of big shakeouts that give you the chance to buy, you know, to buy stocks at just just incredible valuations. Fantastic. Well, thank, thank you, Ian Lance and Nick Purvis of the Temple Bar Investment Trust. Thanks very much for your time, guys. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. To get uh, up-to-date commentary on what's happening in the share markets, both in Europe and North America, and our views on some of the emerging investment stories in the small cap space, make sure you check out www.thearmchairtrader.com and sign up to our free daily newsletter.